This episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. Tom. Kerwin, how are you doing? Mate, I'm unstoppable. How are you, brother? <laughs> are you dropping the branding in the first sentence? Well, that's actually how the podcast got its name. I've been saying this for about 20 years, <laughs> much to uh, either people's delight or chagrin. Um, yeah, it's just a way of reinforcing, uh, yeah, I guess you could say a bit of a, a bit more of a powerful suggestion than not bad or all right. <laughs> That's true. I've got two questions for you before we start. Yeah, fire away. What What is in the orange receptacle to your left? Mate, that is vodka. Uh, triple distilled, um, <laughs> Smirnoff. Um, a really good, uh, a really good blend there. No, mate, it's just water. Just uh, if solid. it was, if it was gin, you'd be a man after my own heart. <laughs> no, that would be my COO Marie. She is an absolute gin fiend. Uh, I'm pretty sure that she has a bag of it that she hooks herself up to for an IV every uh, every evening before bed. <clears throat> Fantastic. <laughs> so, mate, I'm stoked to have you on the on the show. Do you know much about the podcast or the brand? I've I've watched a few episodes. Yeah, absolutely. You actually had somebody who I interviewed as well, uh, Tim Sharp, Doctor Happy. Doctor Happy. Yes, I was going to say. Okay, yeah. great. Yeah, he's a good. I, guy. I, don't, I don't like referring to him as Doctor Happy because I don't know. <laughs> I'm not, well, mate, I'm not you, fond you, of the name. You're sitting there rocking a vape pen. It could be doctor anything at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I look like a Bond villain. That's a different kind of doctor. <laughs> Fuck, we needed that on the show. Uh, mate, okay, you're going to have to drop that line again at some point. All right. Well, <laughs> oh, mate, this is not the show? Uh, well, the it show is, yet? but the, uh, look, I, I think we can maybe work this into it. Um, yeah, Paul. Why saying, do you put this on the show? This is this is great material. Well, this is the podcast starting. You know what? <laughs> this is the podcast. So, ladies and yeah. gentlemen, please welcome to the show Tom Nash, mate. I, I've got to say, your story is fucking incredible. Um, oh, you know, thanks, I, I don't know how to 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 really introduce you other than than what's been written here. You were diagnosed with meningococcal at the age of nineteen, and then you had a yeah. quadruple amputation. Um, which for most people would be, you know, or for anyone, including yourself, I'm sure at the time was probably devastating, but you've actually used that to really not only create for yourself an incredible life, but an incredible story. And, you know, this persona as this, uh, really beautiful Bond villain that does great things, you know, by sharing your story. But mate, I ask Doctor all no my- hands, yeah. <laughs> yeah, look, <laughs> so many jokes. I- I've got to be really careful with because I could I could crack a few funnies that you and I would probably find very entertaining, but the rest of the world would probably vilify me for. But um, <laughs> I I am curious, mate, and I ask all my guests this, and so it would be remiss if I didn't at least ask you as well. If you're at a dinner party um, with eight people that you don't know, and you just sit down, and all of a sudden the room goes quiet, and uh, the attention comes on to to you, and someone says, "So what do you do, Tom?" How do you answer that question? Uh, well, I would probably say at this point that I have been in the entertainment industry because for some reason in my life, people only see value in me if I'm standing in front of large groups of people doing something, whether it be DJing or talking or whatever it is. So I'm, you know, not to my own chagrin, <laughs> the uh, entertainment for people on some level, I guess, in, in many different capacities. And so your story, let, let, let's go back to, I'm sure it began before the age of 19, but let's talk about your life before, before 19. What, what, was, what was Tom's life like? What was it looking like? Where was he going? Uh, my life before the age of 19 was pretty unremarkable, to be honest with you. 
Uh, I was a regular sort of middle class um, kid living in Sydney. Uh, I was studying at uni. I was in first year uni um, at Sydney University here. And I was working at a bar just like a lot of kids do, maybe not nowadays, but um, they did back then, that's for sure. And I used to play guitar. I, I was always a really big music fan, although I was never like professionally trained or anything like that, but I really enjoyed music and it was a great outlet for me and things like that. Um, I, I very much didn't know what I wanted to do career-wise at all. I'm always suspicious of 19-year-olds who know exactly what they want to do. Um, it's, I feel like they haven't lived enough and explored enough. <laughs> They're shady fuckers, probably, let's be honest. Any 19-year-old yeah, yeah, who knows they, what he's here for clearly hasn't lived enough. Exactly, especially millennials, because they're even worse because they think they know everything yeah. and they think they know where they're going and they yeah. know both of uh, neither of those things, I should say. Um, no, sorry, I'm probably unfair to millennials. They do know more than I do. Um, but yeah, so I was a, a directionless uh, middle-class kid who had a penchant for music and uh, was studying psychology. And uh, it was only about eight months or something into that, or into that sort of phase of my life uh, that I got uh, contracted meningococcal. And at the time, I didn't know what meningococcal was at all. I'd, I'd heard the word thrown around at fundraisers and, you know, when motivational speakers come to <laughs> schools and all that sort of horse shit. Uh, but I, I really certainly didn't know what the disease was or what it meant or anything. And um, it was probably a good thing because when I contracted it, I immediately was induced into a coma for about 10 days or two weeks, maybe, or something like that. Uh, and so I, I had to wake up and kind of learn what had happened to me. Um, Do you I remember know being you contracted that, it in the first place? Is that a curiosity? No, I don't. Uh, but I never really felt that mattered. Right. Uh, you know, there was, there was nothing about c contracting something like meningococcal in which you could ever put the blame on something or regret a certain activity in your life. You know, retrospectively, it doesn't really make sense. Um, so it's like saying, how did you get that cold? I mean, you can make suppositions, but you, you never definitively know. Uh, I, I did hear that it is um, the, the virus itself is something that some people carry, but aren't affected by. And then some people um, are susceptible to it. And if you have a particularly compromised immune system and all the stars align and all that sort of bullshit, you can get sick. Although having said that, it is pretty rare, but I do regard myself as special. Um, and so I was uh, one of the one of the few people that did contract a deadly version of this, which was the C strain, um, and that sort of induces, uh, I think, septicemia. It, it is it causes septicemia, and the septicemia causes gangrene. Uh, I'm sure you're noticing a lot of pirate connotations already. Um, and then the gangrene affects your limbs such that um, the, it will kill the tissue. And then to stop it from spreading, you have to amputate limbs. And because I don't do things in halves, I had to go all four. Um, and then I spent about 18 months in hospital over various different hospitals. I didn't stick to one. You like to get uh, around. I, I like to get around. Yeah, a bit of variety. <laughs> My reputation precedes me. I <laughs> um, no, I was, um, I was in RPA uh, for about a month. They were dealing with, I was on life support. That's when I was in the coma. And then I moved to Concord Hospital because uh, meningococcal affects your skin in the same way that burns does. And so they moved me into the burns unit and I was there for about five months. And that's also where they did my amputations. The legs went first um, and then the arms. And I actually, I had high hopes about keeping my arms. 
uh, I remember there was um, sort of tell this story a lot, it's a little bit trite, but um, I had this amazing uh, plastic surgeon, his name was Peter Mates, who had a fantastically dark sense of humor, which matched mine. And I remember the question of whether I would keep my arms or not kept coming up. You know, are we going to be able to keep, uh, is he going to lose some digits? Is he going to lose a whole hand, maybe the whole arm? I didn't really know. And I remember one day that he came into my room, I was in the hospital bed and he said, uh, he said, look, at this point you have two options. He said, you can, you can lose your arms and you'd have to live with prosthetics. People do it, whatever it is. And I didn't very much like that idea, particularly because I was a guitarist and I mean, the, the loss of independence is huge anyway, without even mm. factoring that in. Um, and then he said, well, the other option is you can, you can keep them. And I said, well, I got a sense. And I was like, well, what's the catch? And he's like, oh, you'll die. <laughs> <laughs> Which was just like, at the time, I thought it was a fantastic way of just telling me they had to go. Right. Um, but I did also notice retrospectively that he, what he was doing was giving me a choice in a way. Uh, I, I was over 18 and so I could make decisions for myself. And if I thought I couldn't go on without them, I could just say, don't amputate them and they would kill me without them having to uh, do anything else pretty much. Um, so that was, that was an amazing turning point because at the same time, I mean, up to that point, I really had no choice over what was going on. Um, <clears throat> I mean, if, if I'm being honest, I don't believe any of us really make choices anyway, but uh, at least appeared that it was the first choice I had in a long sequence of choices. Um, so I spent another four months there. I obviously decided to have them amputated. And uh, then I spent a year in a rehab hospital, which was this hospital out on the coast. Did you know La Perouse? I've heard the name. Couldn't pronounce it. it it's kind of, life depends yeah, on it. Well, <laughs> you're not required to. Uh, but so out near Malabar, Maroubra area, there used to be this really big hospital out there. It used to be called the Coast Hospital. And then they renamed it to Prince Henry because apparently Prince Henry visited, you know, back in the 20s or something. And that's something we do. Uh, but it was, it was a predominantly abandoned hospital. It was huge and very expansive. And it sat on the coast and it was flanked by a huge golf course and had a nice sea breeze. And everything about it was great, except for the fact that it looked like fucking Shutter Island. Yeah, wow. Because half of it, the, the whole thing except for two uh, wards were completely shut down, dilapidated. There were homeless people living in it, rats, uh, stray cats, all sorts of things, which shouldn't really be together. But, you know, you get the idea. And uh, the only two wards that were open were the rehabilitation ward, which I was in. Um, and that was filled with pretty much geriatrics who had lost limbs from diabetes and things like that. Uh, and the spinal ward. And uh, I actually wanted to be in the spinal ward. I didn't want a spinal injury, let's be clear. Uh, but I wanted to hang out in the spinal ward because that's where all the young kids were, right? All the young kids, you know, break their back, jumping off cliffs and doing stupid shit that young people do. Um, and so I, I made quite a lot of friends there. I would go down to the spinal ward and hang out with the, the younger dudes who were, were around my age at the time. And uh, I made some good friends down there, which was a good thing because I was there for a year learning how to walk again, use prosthetics, waiting for wounds to heal, uh, which was a just a long drawn out affair 
<laughs> that's not really fit for stories, but uh, it's fit for writing. I'll write about it. And so I'm going to assume, you know, a young 19-year-old male, directionless, but still the world at your feet. Um, that's got to be a lot to come to terms with. You, all of a sudden, you get sick. Um, you go to the doctor, you go to the hospital, you're unconscious for 10 days and then you wake up and you, I'm going to assume you're presented with a succession of big decisions, whether they, you know, you're given the choice or not. At this point, there's, there's, there's not a lot of choice outside of, you know, um, expiry to, to, to proceed. How, how do you deal with that? What came up for you? Like what was some of the the, the the process and the emotions that comes up when you because I guess let me kind of narrow this down into one question before you went into a, an induced coma for ten days did you know what was going down did you know what was going on and and, and the course it was going to take apparently I did right uh, I don't remember this so I kind of lost consciousness along the way in the ambulance to the first hospital all oh, right. Uh, but apparently I was conscious when I got there and I was making decisions because sort of like weird kind of tangential point, but there's, there's a thing called activated protein C, which is a, like a, it's a medicine that was only in trial phases at the time. And apparently the doctor was saying to me, like, look, we have to fly this stuff over from New Zealand. You have to consent to taking it because it's still in trial phases, but it might save your life. Um, and apparently I just said, yeah, look, just do what you got to do. Um, now I don't remember any of that. Uh, so, so apparently I knew about it, but then when I woke up out of the coma, I very much had no idea what was going on, but it's also a surreal experience because not only are you on life support, you're also pumped full of a lot of drugs. And so the whole experience is a little bit, well, yeah, it's just, it's just surreal. You don't know what's reality and what's fantasy. You don't know what you're dreaming. You don't know when you're awake. Lucidity is a very sort of tenuous concept at that point and, and it's a sliding scale so you kind of you become more lucid over days and weeks and and then things start to hit you and at the same time people always speak very ambiguously uh, you know medical professionals when they when they talk to you because at the same time they actually really didn't know how shit was going to go down either I think a lot of them thought I was I was going to die I had like a 10% chance of survival or something and so they don't want to demotivate you <laughs> but um, they, they don't want to give you false hope. And uh, so everything is sort of couched in this kind of, oh, well, we don't know, or hopefully we can do this, or maybe this will be the case. So even when you're in a position where you know nothing, you feel like you increasingly know less than nothing right. <laughs> as you go forward. At what point um, did the dawn come where you started to realize shit was about to get very different? Um. I don't think there was a there was one point. I, right. I honestly, I, th I think it it's something succession. that happened gradually over time. Yeah, right. yeah. It's kind of like you know the evolution of the chicken and an egg. You know, at what point was it a chicken? Well, I mean, we could draw the line somewhere, but if we're being realistic, you know, it just happens over time. Right. Uh, so, I mean, there were certain realizations that I had at particular points. For instance, the one I mentioned about uh, Peter Mates telling me I had to lose my arms. I definitely knew at that point. How far um, into the journey it was, was it at this point when, when you had that conversation? That, I, I would say maybe two months around okay. that because I was in RPA for about six weeks and then I moved to- And you'd already Concord lost both legs at this point? My... No, I hadn't. You no. hadn't, okay. So yeah, 
all of the amputations went were at Concord. And so for the first six weeks, it was just, you know, life support and popcorn. Um, and then went to Concord, they did the amputations. Um, so, but the legs did go first. And weirdly, I was sort of unperturbed about the leg thing. I remember them telling me there was another doctor who just came in and said, look, the legs have to go. At that point, I was just, I think maybe it was the amount of drugs they had me on or something like that. Or I just knew that I was going to die if I didn't. Thought to myself, I'm sure it's fine. You know, people get around with no legs. I, I didn't really know. But, but worst case scenario, I'd be in a wheelchair, um, which just meant I'd have a lot of people to look up to. Um, but then I thought, you know, perhaps I could get prosthetic legs and walk. And a few people had mentioned that that's possible. And so I thought it's not all, you know, bad news. Uh, the arm arm thing really affected me, you know, not just because of how much independence it seeks to um, relieve you of, uh, but also because of the music, because I, I really wanted to play guitar. And that was something that was an outlet in my life that regardless of how my career went or my life went, I always had that. And, uh, and then when they took them, I thought, well, this, this is going to be a hard thing to learn how to do again. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm not going to do it, yeah, but it's going to be hard. And so when that finally happened and you, you've come out the other side, what, what, was, what was the ride like? Because like, I can only assume, you know, you've gone through a massive change of life. There's got to be things that come up for you. You've studied at this point a level, you know, or you're interested in psychology. So you've clearly got an understanding that there are going to be psychological impacts. What were the impacts that came up for you? Uh, well, I mean, it depends on what kind of timeline you're talking about, because for, for the first sort of year and a half that I was in hospital, everything was about uh, overcoming the physical adversity, right? For me, the, the mental stuff kind of dissipated once I was in less physical pain. I, I, I did suffer from what I think is depression at the time. Uh, but at the same time, I could be wrong. I don't know if it was depression. Maybe it was just, I mean, obviously I felt really horrible, uh, but I noticed that the more and more I, I felt better physically, the more and more I felt better mentally. And so a lot of the time, you know, learning how to walk again was, about, you know, balance and tactic and all that sort of stuff. It was about, I get up on prosthetic legs, but I still have wounds on the end of my stumps and it's causing immeasurable pain. And so I can't advance because that pain is prohibiting me from doing so. And then that kind of spirals out of control. But I think, you know, once we get to moving out of home there and then living independently, <clears throat> it was at that point that I think I began to use the lessons that I'd learned in like in the physical rehabilitation process to help me get over other things because it, it, it's almost like I'm not sure if you've read uh, Nassim Taleb's uh, Anti-Fragile, that book, no. which kind of talks about systems. But I mean, if we use it like as an analogy for life, it's like that which um, makes you uh, disproportionately stronger when you experience adversity. So, I mean, a lot of people talk about resilience these days, but I mean, like resilience and robustness is pretty much just not necessarily improving as a person, but being able to weather storms quite well and just staying at the same level. Whereas anti-fragility is something in which you react positive, positively to negative events. Right. And you, you sort of learn how to grow uh, from setbacks in a way. And that was something that I had learned 
a lot during the physical rehabilitation process. And another one of the things I learned was um, I, I was put in this position where I was forced to uh, think differently about problem solving. I had to start to think laterally about problem solving as well. Um, and the, the, it, I guess the example, <clears throat> which is uh, most analogous that I, I used in my TED talk was the uh, walking up a step, um, which I tried to do week after week and I, I just couldn't work it out. And then I realized that it, it had to do with an ankle movement and the repetition wasn't helping me. Trying to do it the same way I always did wasn't helping me. And I had to think about things differently. And as soon as I did that and just turned my, my body to the side and tried to go up a step that way, I went up immediately. The, the problem had nothing to do with you know persistence. Um, it just had to do with approaching it from a different angle, quite literally in this sense. And so using those lessons as well and trying to change a, a mindset that the way that things are always done aren't the way they have to be done in the future. I mean, sometimes they are the best way to do them, but sometimes uh, looking at problems differently can be more beneficial. And it's also something that nobody else is doing, right? <laughs> it seems to me that you've you've taken this incredibly well. And again, how, if you don't mind me asking, how old are you now? How 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 long has I'm 38 now? I'll be 39 in July. So we're talking almost 20 years later. And so there's been a lot of a it lot is, of yeah. a lot of water under the bridge. You've 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 obviously clearly adapted to hmm. the the new way of living. But were there any periods of your life where there were immense struggle that you had to learn parts about yourself? that might be valuable for other people that are maybe going through struggle that you've had to apply to, you know, the, the, the life situation and context that you, you found yourself in. Cause at this yeah, point, it well, seems I mean, like it was a pretty rosy, not a rosy, but it seems like you handled <laughs> this pretty well in your stride. And I'm going to assume you brought an enormous level of sense of humor to the situation. Cause that just seems innate. Yeah. You have to, right? That's yeah. And, a, and dark sense of humor. That is probably one of the most cathartic things that you can do. Or I know for me personally, you know, I've had yeah. some interesting experiences in my life and, you know, I'm the first one to laugh at them and, mm. you know, to make very dark jokes because, because for me that I find a lot of, you know, it's quite cathartic to do that. But I'm going to assume at some point there had to be periods of despair. You know, you mentioned that there was maybe a taste of depression. And, and to me, I don't think we necessarily need to experience depression to experience despair. But when we're confronted with you know, the, the level of adversity that you, you've had to, you know, persist and, and, and adapt and evolve into, uh, I can only assume there were periods of, you know, uh, potentially social isolation, psychological isolation, or, you know, um, mental challenge or, you know, combined with the physical challenge outside of just the pain of things being able to heal that you, that you had to get yourself through. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and there, there absolutely were. I probably wasn't. I I wasn't paying attention enough to. Sorry, that's my Apple Watch. Uh, can I turn that off? No, I can't turn it off. You're just gonna have to put it up with this in the background. Sorry. Oh, by the way, let me tell. I'll, I'll tell you the story about the Apple Watch after this. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, yeah, I, I think when it when it comes to the mental side of things, I don't think I was paying enough attention at the time when I was going through despair to really uh, reflect on the taxonomy of it. I, you know, I, I, as I said before, I'm not sure whether I can actually describe it as depression. It, it was definitely a horrible feeling and it affected me emotionally. Um, but I think I also learned how to use framing techniques in a way that helped me through that period 
in the sense of of trying to project uh, into the future, which I use to this day as well. And it's kind of a uh, a technique that is um, beneficial when you're going through periods of hardship to which there appear to be no upside. So if there's nothing that you can learn from a horrible situation, uh, what I like to do is try to project myself to a future time, looking back on myself at this point and seeing what I would be proud of myself for having come out as. Like how, how would I have liked to come out the other side of that problem? Would I like to become out you know, stronger? Would I like to have dealt with things more graciously? Um, and I think that framing technique is, is really useful when you're talking about emotional stress or um, yeah, anything mental as well, because typically my first go-to is to look to how I can benefit from some sort of adversity or hardship. And then if I can't, I imagine myself in the future, looking back onto myself now and thinking, how would, what would I be proud of coming out of this as? Wow. That's powerful. I'm going to assume you've, you've supported indirectly or even directly a lot of people who have gone through a whole range of challenges, you know, because I, I guess when you look at the challenge that you've had, it creates contrast. I know right now, even just in this conversation, you know, you're making me really value. I had an accident at the age of 15 where I fell on a broken bottle, cut all my nerves, all my tendons, Ouch. main artery, nearly bled to death inside a road, 13 and a half hours of microsurgery was told I'd be lucky to get you know, but again, in contrast, I was, I was told I'd be lucky to get 20, 20% use of my hand back. You know, and I worked for a number of mm. years to get to a point where I've got like, you know, 70 odd, 80, almost 90% use of that hand back. But in contrast, you know, with the situation that you've found yourself in, like, you know, even just in this conversation, you, you, you're bringing out an enormous level of uh, vulnerability in myself, just in terms of the gratitude for, you know, the experience that I'm able to have for the gratitude for the, you know, I look at the accidents that I've had and I'm like, fuck, I'm so glad I had that accident. It could have been so vastly different. And that's not to say you're in a worse boat or no, I'm in a better boat, but I'm going to assume that when people have been through challenge that you're connected with, oftentimes they'll find themselves talking to you to go, how did you get through this? So, you know, and you've just shared it with, with, with the audience, an incredibly powerful technique of finding benefit in a hard situation. And if you can't find benefit, how do you then look at it? How do you create a hindsight perspective by you know going into the future and looking back on that moment? What other techniques have you developed that you share with, you know, whether it be with friends or family or other audiences around the world that you've found to be incredibly helpful when it comes to overcoming adversity? Well, I, I just, before I get onto that, I just want to make a point about the, because um, <clears throat> you, you bring up a, a great point about w with your hand and everything like that. Uh, and considering, I think, the subjective nature of everyone's hardship, I think it's almost entirely useless to compare uh, one person's adversity to another. And I think that it's completely subjective to your own life. So what you went through, you know, might be a eight or nine out of 10 on the horrible shit to happen to you scale. And <laughs> mine might be the same as well. But somebody from a third perspective might look at both and say, well, this is worse or that's worse. I don't think it really matters, right? I think it matters within your own life, you know, when things get really bad and when things get uh, really good. And so the distance uh, between measurements between uh, subjects is less relevant than the distance between measurements uh, after someone being asked over a period of time. And it almost is becomes one of my pet peeves that 
people will often say, uh, so so downstream of this idea, it's like people will say, well, I, I could never have gone through what you went through. And I know that they mean well when they say that, but if I wanted to communicate anything to anyone, it would be the exact opposite of that. Because I probably didn't think I would either at the age of 19, um, but I'm here and everything's fine. Uh, and, and the one message that I think would be great for people to get out of my story is that, yeah, horrible shit happens all the time. And it's totally within you to get through that. Uh, th that's what I would like to, you know, be an example of just off the bat, I guess. And so it, it does annoy me a little bit that people take the exact opposite from me sometimes. <laughs> but I guess it's in many respects how people see themselves in those moments. You know, and oftentimes mm. people don't realize what they've got until they have to, until they're forced to dig deep. And mm. look, I, I get the sense you're a very humble man. Um, and you, you, you do love to make light and fun of situations, which I really admire. But if you were to look at yourself, you know, from the future, looking back and looking at the things that you are now proud of within yourself that you've been able to accomplish, that a lot of people might assume that they would never be able to do. What are the characteristics within yourself that you have developed that have enabled you to have this level of cruise control? And I hope you don't mind me saying that because you seem like you're in a, you have a level of cruise control. You're like, man, I'm just cruising with mm. this. You know, I'm not mm. in resistance. I'm not in judgment. I'm not in, you know, <clears throat> any form of non-acceptance. I'm, I'm fully embracing the situation I'm in right now. If not, I'm rocking it out. But what do you look back on yourself and go, man, these are the characteristics. These are the virtues. These are the traits that I've developed that maybe weren't as present as that 19-year-old young man, directionless young man had, that you look back on yourself now that are, that are present that you are proud of yourself for? Uh, almost everything that I am right now. <laughs> if I were to look back on the 19-year-old, I wasn't particularly proud of him. Um, so I guess everything that I like about myself now has been cultivated since that point. And I think most of it has to do with a level of, self-reflection and honesty. And I don't mean honesty with, with other people. I mean, honesty to myself of what I really value in life and what I enjoy and trying to remain detached from uh, <clears throat> what is the, the common wisdom of what we should value, um, I guess, in our lives. I, I tend to anchor towards different things and, I like self-reflection. I like philosophy and I like human psychology. I like thinking about things in different ways. I like food and wine. I like, you know, like there are certain things that are important to me that I completely anchor towards in my life. And I, I make no compromises about autonomy is another one of those things. Um, and so I, I think that those values are probably the most important um, up until now, with respect to improving my subjective well-being. Mm. Autonomy. You've said that that's an important value to you, but I'm going to assume it's probably yeah. been one of the hardest virtues to fully embrace. Tell me about that story. Oh, I don't know. I'm just a bit of a control freak, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, you know, like I, I run businesses, my, my best friend and I run a, you know, we still do run a business for, you know, the better part of uh, 15 years now. And over that time, we have 
tried as much as we could to, because he's quite similar to me as well, to sort of delegate responsibilities to other people. Uh, and it, we just can't do it. We're just <laughs> way too controlling about things. And uh, yeah, there's, uh, I think that's just a part of my personality that I just need to accept. I need to kind of be my own boss to a certain extent and live at my own pace and balance, uh, you know, time and work and fun. And, you know, like I, I just, I need way more control than the average person does. I think I've been given too much and you give me an inch and I'll take a mile. But I'm going to assume for some of the autonomy you've got right now, you've had to fight for it. You've had to work um, hard for it. Well, it depends what kind of autonomy you're talking about. Uh, if you mean vocationally, uh, yeah, somewhat. I mean, you need to be, uh, what's the word that would describe this well? Probably nothing that I can come up with in a few seconds, but uh, you need to be able to be satisfied with nothing, but pleased with everything. Um, you need to hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. Uh, you go through hard times, you go through horrible times, but I love that dynamic. You know what I mean? I, I, I feel I'm the kind of person that if everything stayed completely stagnant, even if it was like a, a very slight rise over time, I would be immeasurably bored. And I don't do well with boredom. So you've been in business now for 15 years. So let's talk about that journey because mm. we talk about you sure. know, journeys that are difficult. Then the physical journey that you've been through has probably been one of the most difficult that most people could imagine. Uh, and then you find yourself wanting to be in business. How did that journey begin? That's a good question. Um, the journey began uh, as a passion project. Um, as many great businesses do, I guess. And uh, so so uh, just to back up a little bit, I had been um, playing in a couple of bands. Sorry, playing in a band in a couple of places. <laughs> and uh, my best friend and I were, were both in this band together. And at the time, I, w I went back to do some study because, as I said, I'd, I'd, been, I'd started the degree, but I didn't go back and do that. I went back and I studied um, sound engineering and music business management because I, I was in a like life is short moment. Let's just do what I love. Um, and so I went back and I learned how to do audio engineering and uh, music business. I thought there might be something in that. And then I had to do a bit of work experience towards the end of it. I was sort of forced to go out into the, into the big bad world of nightclubs and get a job doing something presumably. And I managed to get a bit of work experience at um, a nightclub in the cross and I was just doing some uh, pr promotional things. I was I was actually running uh, one of their nights, which was a Thursday night, and I was doing sort of promoter duties. I was booking uh, DJs and uh, doing all the promotional material and hiring door staff and all this sort of really shit job. Um, and I, I, there was no remuneration for it, really, um, but I, I was quite good at it. And I would get Chris to come down and, and uh, DJs, my best friend. And between the two of us, I'm pretty sure we were responsible for most of the people that came there. And it ended up being busier than their Saturday nights. And so we thought to ourselves, oh, we've really got something here and it's quite a fun thing to do. And, um, and so we thought, well, maybe we could sit around and work out how we could do like a club night together or something like that. And at this point, it was just for fun, literally. Um, and serendipitously, I, I received a call from a friend who owned a club in uh, just outside King's Cross who said uh, our Saturday nights have, are moving on. Would you like to 
have a crack at making it work. And I thought, yeah, you know, I would definitely like to do that. So Chris and I got together and we went down for a meeting with this guy. We had absolutely no idea what we were doing whatsoever. There were spreadsheets that meant nothing. There were documents with words we didn't even understand. We had a branding plan. It was all total shit, right? It was, <laughs> if I could find those documents now, I could do with a laugh. Uh, but we went down there and presented this thing. And the guy was like, yeah, that's fine. Just try it out, you know, just see what you can do. And we thought at best this thing would last, you know, a couple of months, something like that. And uh, yeah, it lasted for 15 years. So it ended up being a, the longest running weekly club, club night in Sydney, um, to the best of my knowledge. Uh, and it sort of launched our careers as DJs as well, because in the beginning, we actually didn't have money to pay other people to DJ at our night. So, you know, I think between the two of us, we're like, let's try the guy with no hands and see if that works. <laughs> He'll be cheap. <laughs> DJ, spin that wheel. Yeah. And so, uh, and uh, it was fine because it wasn't, you know, vinyl records, which I would have scratched and not in like the sick way. Um, so we had like CD <laughs> players and Chris just told me, he's like, that's the button for play. That's the button for that. I had a working knowledge of sound. So I was like, I think I can sort this out. And obviously I was terrible, but you know, my first set was on our opening night and we'd promoted it sufficiently well that we had hundreds of people. So my, my first DJ set ever was in front of a packed club. Wow. And it, it would have been terrible. I really wished we'd recorded it because that would have been something to listen to. Uh, 15 years later, but um, yeah, it, it, it would have been terrible. But we, again, being thrown in the deep end with something like that was a fantastic way to learn really quickly. And we have the kind of dispositions that were still are that we don't really care and don't take ourselves too seriously. So as long as we're having fun, people will have fun. And uh we just got better as DJs. And then eventually we started getting asked to play other clubs. We're like, are you fucking serious? They're going to they're gonna pay us money to go to another club and play to people? And we started getting booked for interstate gigs and then we get booked for uh, like other gigs around Sydney. When eventually we, we played, uh, we, we had our own stage at Future Music Festival for seven years, bro. Sonic and... Uh, What's what's splendor in the grass? We've played now internationally in Japan and all sorts of places like that. So it completely just launched our careers as DJs off the bat, and um, you know, in in a a very strange twist of fate, I guess. That's incredible. <laughs> That's absolutely incredible. And so now your uh, DJ come, you still do the nightclub promotions, club nights. Yeah. So obviously not with COVID. Yeah. Um, and it's been challenging for us because we also has, have to abide by the square meter rule and uh, we tend to pack them out. So we're, we're kind of in a bit of a hiatus until such time as the restrictions are lifted. Um, but we, we ran weekly for, uh, I think, over 12 years. I'm not too sure. And then we moved to periodic parties where we would do Mardi Gras and we'd do uh, uh, Halloween and stuff like that, which we have separate brands for and things. And we still DJ places. Um, so we definitely scaled it back. Um, but also, you know, we're like, we're pushing 40. Like we can't be in clubs every week. It's just, there's a certain point you get to where the conversation, like the distance between you and the punters conversation wise gets a little bit too wide. Yeah. Right. And so what's like, next? I don't really know too much about TikTok statistics. <laughs> 
And, and are you on TikTok? I am on TikTok, and I'll tell you right of now. Of course you are. I'm crushing it. Of course it. you are. How many times have I what been you, on TikTok? Are you? How many? How many? Um, I am on it. Yeah, but I don't. Uh, I'm not very good at it. Um, and I, I usually just put up little videos of me, you know, making ravioli or feeding my dog peanut butter. Oh my god, I'd watch that. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, we got lucky. We got lucky with TikTok. I think we got on the right time. We had uh, a really, a really. Uh, we've got a pretty good content team, and yeah, we we seem to hit the mark with. Oh, a, you have a content team? Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I have. I've been at this. Oh well, bit. for fuck's sake, you should be killing it. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Well, that's what I'm saying. We do. I really haven't well got a team. TikTok. I've just got my dog. That's it. <laughs> you know, I've maybe been on TikTok a dozen times, but uh, we're crushing it. Yeah. On on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> how many? Uh, how many followers? Uh, okay, let me ask you this. How aware is the CCP of you? How aware is the CCP of me? Well, it's funny you should say that. I've been waiting for a knock at the door, but I haven't quite got one yet. But I, I am putting it out there that I'm very interested to learn more about communism at its roots yeah. within the CCP from a China perspective. You know, And this is yeah. a completely separate conversation, but I find it very interesting that we're trying to compete with a country that has a level of solidarity and a 600-year plan, and they have one leader that's not going anywhere for life. Yeah, we're transitioning mm. leaders every four years, and we're lucky if we've even got a plan. So, uh, to me, there's only yeah. one way this is going to end, and it's uh, it's not good if we don't get our shit together. And so, I'd like to know more about the country that's probably going to occupy us in the next forty years. <laughs> oh, you and think it, that's going to? Is that why you're on TikTok? No, I don't think we're going to end up being <laughs> occupied. But I do think we uh, we have a hell of a way to go when it comes to understanding trade and um, uh, economics and military when we're dealing with something like, um, you know, with the, and I, I admire the organization and that's why I'd like to actually, I'm putting it out there. I'd like to learn more about it, not because, um, I'm looking to necessarily be converted, but I, I do have a level of admiration for the level of organization that they've been able to put together. Not, and I know with good comes just bad. to be, just to be clear, this isn't the kind of content you put out on TikTok, is it? Fuck no. These, oh, conversations? This, these conversations, no, the, the content that we do actually really, it's kind of, this is so interesting and it's ironic at the same time. But the content that we seem to have struck a chord with the most is parenting content, which is ironic considering most of the people who are watching it are millennials whose parents may not have necessarily done the best job. So, and I'm not saying all. <laughs> Otherwise, why would you let that? That is it? interesting. Actually. Yeah. You, you're a parent, aren't you? I am. I am. I, uh, I'm a parent. I've got a seven-year-old boy and uh, my partner has a nine-year-old girl. And I have right. to say, I love parenting more than it. Like, that would probably be one of my top gigs. Um, in mm. life is being a dad and, um, yeah, I'm maybe a little bit like you, I get obsessive. And so when I get into something, like when I found out my ex-wife was pregnant, I fucking, I, I, I started interviewing cause I don't not long started the podcast. So I started interviewing the top world's top child psychologist, early childhood developments. Um, and just wanted yeah. to go, okay, if I'm going to do this, I don't want to fuck this kid up. <laughs> I want to try and give him mm. the best possible chance at life. And, um, yeah. Yeah. And as a result, I, I seem to. Don't you, don't, don't, doesn't every parent sort of fuck their kid up in some way? You just got to like learn the best way not to. The best way to fuck or a the, child up. Um, well, look, it's interesting. <laughs> um, James Oliver. This is better for TikTok. This is, this much, is much better, better for TikTok. TikTok. <laughs> James Oliver actually wrote a book, um, about parenting. It's called, they fuck you up. So. Yeah, yeah, that's oh, actually right. the name of the book, and um, it's a great book on Perfect. parenting. So, you know, I think that's parents' jobs is to you know pass down levels of wisdom, pass down levels of wounds. You know, the wounds provide opportunities for growth for us to develop even more wisdom, so that we provide you know a greater disparity between the amount of wisdom and wounds that we uh, we pass down. Because at some point, it'd be nice to get to a generation. I don't know if you agree, whereby they're not spending you know the disproportionate amount of their time trying to fix themselves. They're spending a disproportionate amount of time trying to fix you know other issues. Um, 
and being You're able talking to talking about it. like the generations or yeah you know because i think yeah. there's a lot of generations right now that are busy trying to sort themselves out which i think is a great i'm one of them uh i've spent a disproportionate mm. amount of my life trying to understand and, and find meaning in in things other than just um you know getting up and going to work but i think there's a lot to be said for us solving bigger problems you know and uh, i think we have a few coming i will way. i will i will say that i i do agree with you 100 percent. but i i do think that to be in a position to make change you probably need to have yourself sorted out first oh absolutely and that's therein lies the point you know because mm. if you're coming out of a situation where you have to spend the first you know 20 30s of your years 30 20 30 years of your life sorting yourself out you know at some point you're going to have a level of you know age experience and wisdom that you can apply to other things but imagine if we had you know a level of age experience and wisdom in kids that were 19 20 21 22 who you know mm. were able to while at their prime and there are many there are many people that are doing that right now and 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 me saying this is not to say that there isn't um <clears throat> i just think it's we're quickly accelerating to the point where we need to be solving bigger problems i will say that the older that i get the less i trust myself uh in that i mean i think that there's an inverse relationship with with age and knowledge such that you know, the older you get, or the more that you know, hopefully you're learning more as you get older, um, the more you realize you don't. And so to, to be able to sort of, uh, if you were to project that into the future, I would assume that by the end of my life, I know next to nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so I yeah. don't, don't want to be, uh, scheme of I don't want to be making any decisions for anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> just, let's just allow me to fuck up my own like life you know what? the just same way fuck that you'll up fuck up life. your kids' lives. And hopefully and then they, I- <laughs> when they touch anyone else's in the process. So true. Exactly, yeah. So true. So are you going to breed at any point, mate? Have you Am got I going to what, sorry? Are you, have you got kids? I don't you... have kids. No, just just an Italian greyhound right now. That's it. Yeah, right. Okay, fantastic. Who's, a, who's a, you know, a bit of a handful, especially for someone with no hands? <laughs> <laughs> and no legs. I was, you know, I don't want I to can go all afternoon, by the way. <laughs> How do you walk a dog? <laughs> do you just put them oh, on the I, I walk in. Well, that's why I've got an Italian greyhound, right? Because I, I wanted a bigger dog. I like big dogs. Right. Uh, but I thought to myself, if I put this thing on a lead and it runs, it's oh. just going to pull me over. Yeah, fair enough. That would be and a good And then TikTok I'm screwed video. and then the dog... That would be- <laughs> can we get can we get your team on that? <laughs> Mate, absolutely. I need a team. We'll get it. We'll get you a, a, a yeah. fifty kilo German Shepherd, and I'll throw the ball, and you just hang on for dear. That life. would actually be really fun. That would be. <laughs> I so would like to do that. If I ever come to uh, Byron Bay, we'll do that. Mate, you're more than welcome. So, what's next for you, Tom? Like, it seems to me you've got a few things on the boil. Yeah, I do. I always have a bunch of things uh, percolating it at any given point in time. I've been doing quite a lot of speaking. I still do DJing. Um, but I think the thing that's on the horizon for me most is uncertainty, um, which is what I thrive off. Yeah, right. I, I like to live a life in which uh, it could be anything different next year and I wouldn't be ready for it. <laughs> I like not being ready for things and big changes. You know what? That'd be a great title for a book, Uncertainty. What was that? What's the title? Uncertainty. What? Just uncertainty. Yeah, just uncertainty. It's, it sounds like one of those. Do you Learning remember a guy live. called Paul Jennings? Do you remember Paul Jennings? Where do I know that name from? He, yeah, he 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 was a kids author, and he used to do books, and they would always begin with un something. So it was uncanny, or you know, yeah. un, you know it was children's author. It was around the time that Goosebumps were around. Okay, I, we're, we're about the same age, I'm guessing. Yeah, uh, you, you would have. You're at least. What, I'm 31, 32. Yeah. 
<laughs> you already know how old I am. Yeah, Fuck well, you. Mate, I'm, I'm, I'm actually 47. I'm, I think I'm 40 fucking eight this year. I, I keep forgetting. Oh, are you really? Yeah. Okay. Well, there's a 10 year gap. Maybe it was a little bit um, uh, bef- after your time. Okay. Then. Sorry, Possibly. before or after your time? Maybe you were too old for Goosebumps and I, and I do Jennings, remember but... Goosebumps coming in when I was a little bit older. So, yeah, I probably yeah, yeah, you, I might yeah, have missed okay. a boat on that. Anyway, look, it's we've gone down a, a really weird road here. Mate, while we're down the rabbit hole. <laughs> All I'm saying is uncertainty would, would be a Paul Jennings book. Mate, and I think it should be yours because I think there'd be a lot of people who would agree. Uh, you've, you're, you're a bit of a wordsmith, mate. Uh, oh, thank you so much. It would be great at some point if you maybe put that into uh, into a book. Yeah, I mean, not as we speak right now, but right. At this that would be fucking impressive. Time, you do have one hand really I can't see, so it? anything's possible. Good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I uh, I started. Look, I'd, I'd been writing bits and pieces over my life, uh, not in a, any kind of narrative form, but just as a kind of a stamp collection of sorts, I guess, just to remember mm, anecdotes that. and moments and things like that. And uh, I I write a lot and I journal a lot, and uh, I decided a couple of years ago that I was going to do it properly. And so I took a bit of time out in 2019. I spent a few months overseas um, sitting, you know, in cafes and watching people on the street and just writing on a little uh, keyboard and iPad. And uh, I churned out enough for a book, uh, but I want to write double that and then, and then halve it. Um, So I still have a little bit of time to go on it, but uh, as we speak, the proposal is being sent off. Uh, to some agents in the states, yeah, nice. so we'll see how it goes. It's not. It's not called um, uncertainty. uncertainty, though. Unfortunately, no. Yeah, is it called Sorry. undressed? My working title My is hook, truth. line, and sinner. Hey, what is it? <laughs> My working title is uh, hook, line, and sinner. Hook, line. Oh, I like that. Oh, I like that a lot. Hook, line, and sinner. I think it's good. Yeah, I do. I think that's yeah. amazing. So if, if anyone ever signs that they don't like that, then they can get fucked. No, and they can put go. It up as an yeah, we, we know what they can do. We'll find them <laughs> somewhere, somewhere else, just not here. Tom, I've got to say, I've really enjoyed the conversation. You are so personable. You are so free uh, in who you are and how you show up with what you've been through. There's only really one question that I've got left that is just itching on me. Mm-hmm. What's what in the it? vape? I don't know if I'm this? curious. Yes. <clears throat> Let me see if the camera focuses. Does the camera focus on that? Really it looks it. like a great piece of technology. It is. It is a jewel uh, vape, <clears throat> um, and I think they're trying to make them illegal in Australia, which is completely retarded. But um, yeah, I, I quit smoking using this about four years ago. Yeah, no, nice. I haven't had a cigarette since then, and I used to smoke a pack a day at least. Wow. Then, wow. Yeah. So it's only nicotine. There's nothing fancy in there. No, no, it's not CBD oil. If you think I'm just getting high talking to you, I mean, that could be a separate podcast. <laughs> well, that says everything. First of all, you can't get high off CBD. There's got to get some whack some THC in there if you really want to get your. your, your... Oh, is that right? I don't know enough about it. Mate, Sorry, you, I don't actually go smoke and hang weed. out in a few nightclubs. Talk to a few of the kids on the dance floor, and they'll they'll probably oh, tell you what's what. There we go. Can't do it anymore, Cohen. No more than you could right now. Mate, Actually, I you could. probably do better than it because you're on TikTok. Oh, mate, I'm on TikTok. I should be in nightclubs. I cannot stand. I have. I can't remember the last time I was actually in a nightclub. To be honest, between you and me, Tom, I um, I'm going to say thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your um, yeah, your stories. But I also want to thank you for your 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 courage and your determination and your resilience and um, 
look, I, I get the sense you're not one to heave praise on yourself. So, you know, let me do the heavy lifting for you. Um, I really admire what you've done, mate. I really admire how you show up. Um, and I think you embody a sense of autonomy that's presented in freedom in the way that you express yourself that really says so much about who you are and the level of work that you've done on, you know, finding your, your, your center. So mate, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, it's hard for me to follow up with a, with praise like that, but appreciate the kind words nonetheless. Mate, I, 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 and I mean every single one of them, but if people want to find you, where do they find you apart from TikTok? Um, there's, there's a bar in Sydney called the barber shop and, uh, I like to sit there and drink martinis so you can find me there. <laughs> not Instagram, no, don't, don't, not don't, TikTok, don't the barbershop. No, no, don't don't follow me on social media. It's fucking boring. <laughs> Mate, I think I think you have I think you're an untapped amount of content. You just haven't found your groove yet. <laughs> well, maybe I can chat to your team. <laughs> happy to. Happy to, mate. Would yeah. absolutely love that. Well, too. thanks so much for the invitation. I've, I've had a really good time. Likewise. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Tom Nash, and you've been listening to Unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business, but we do it from an immersive, but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way and we're looking at five key areas we're looking at your psychology we're looking at your marketing your sales your leadership and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly so if you'd like to find out more information kerwinray.com